Good evening. I'm Carrie Brower, the Chief Curator and Acting Director here at the Hirshhorn, and welcome you to another in our series of Meet the Artist events. We're very lucky tonight to have Tony Ausler here with us, um, who is one of the artists in the exhibition uh, which we open today, The Cinema Effect, Illusion, Reality, and the Moving Image. Um, and I think the subtitle pretty much tells you what the exhibition uh, is about for those of you who haven't seen it yet. Um, it really explores, it really takes a look at the landscape of film and video today and uh, explores the notion that uh, in today's society, sometimes uh, what's real and, and what's fiction is uh, getting blurred. Um, this is a rather unusual exhibition for us, and it's a little bit of an experiment. Uh, we have uh, this exhibition opening today, and it runs through May, and then the second half of the exhibition, it's in two parts, will open in June, and it's titled Realisms. Uh, Kelly Gordon and uh, I worked on this first half, and then the second half is done by Ann Elgood and Kristen Heilman. So this may be the first time in the Hirshhorn's history that you actually have to come to two exhibitions, really, ju to just experience one of them. Um, Tony actually has work in the show, along with a number of other artists, some of whom um, are here with us tonight, I think, if I see them out there. Uh, Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler are here, who have a piece in the exhibition. Uh, Anthony McCall is here with us tonight. Sebrin Versteg, I think I saw walk in, uh, is here as well, as is Kelly Richardson who's in the exhibition. So we're surrounded by the artists that are, that are in the cinema effect uh, tonight. Um, I wanna just uh, say a couple words of thanks uh, before I actually introduce uh, Tony. And uh, the first is that the Meet the Artist series is really an ongoing series that we have here at the museum uh, to meet contemporary artists. And it's funded in an ongoing way by Stephen and Heather Mnuchin Foundation and we really want to thank them for their ongoing support of this exhibition. And I also want to thank Morella and Danny Levinas for extra support uh, for uh, this presentation uh, tonight uh, for Meet the Artist. I want to thank Malena Kalinowska, who runs such a great public programs for us here at the museum and does a great job with Meet the Artist, as well as Kevin Hall, who gets everything together uh, for these um, uh, talks that we do. We have some um, upcoming programs, and we're going to be, um, I'm gonna plug myself here for a moment, where I'm going to be doing a talk about the cinema effect, whatever that means, uh, on February 23rd at two o'clock, which I think is a Saturday. So uh, I gotta give up my Saturday for this, uh oh. And um, so, but please, please come to that if, if, if you're not doing anything else on Saturday. Uh, <laughs> Thursday, March 27th at 7 p.m., uh, we'll have another Meet the Artist uh, with Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler, who are here with us tonight and they have a, a very beautiful piece in the show, and I hope you'll come hear them as well. It should be a very interesting uh, dialogue. Uh, we have uh, an After Hours event coming up on April 4th, which uh, are always very exciting and, and a lot of fun, and we're going to have at that event a performance by, and of course, I act as if I really know 
who this is, but hooligan ship and lucky dragons. And maybe Kevin, who's out in the audience, can fill us in on that. But I hear that it's really terrific, and I've actually actually really have seen some, some images uh, on the internet, and I think it actually looks like it's gonna be a very cool evening. So, so please come to that. Uh, I've forgotten the date, uh, and maybe someone can remind me that we are actually showing, you know, as part of the exhibition, we've got uh, only a, we've got a short little segment from Andy Warhol's Sleep that we are showing in the exhibition. It's short, it's only 120 minutes, so it's a, it's a tiny excerpt from Sleep, which is, which is five and a half hours, but does anyone know the date? April? Early April, anyone got a calendar back there? Okay, well, look on your calendar, look on the April 6th, thank you, Tyler. At April 6th, we are going to be presenting from noon until whenever, probably five or 5.30, thank you, uh, all of sleep for your enjoyment. And, and believe me, it, it, there, there's all kinds of action sequences in the middle that, that people don't really know about because they just don't watch the whole thing. <laughs> also, on April 12th at 2 p.m., Dietrich Newman, a architectural historian, will be talking about the illuminated building. And, and this is really sort of important for us because one of the aspects of the cinema effect is this idea that Everything in the world today has become cinematic. The cinema no longer exists just in movie palaces. It's spilled out of the movie theater and it's now on television. It's on the internet. You can download it onto your iPod and carry movies around in your pocket, just like you could back in the 19th century. It's amazing what progress we're making. And you know, you can also uh, uh, have images streaming in on your uh, computer. But even more than that, uh, there are such powerful projectors today that you can project the moving image onto buildings. And buildings have now become illuminated in many different ways, through light sources, but also through moving image that is projected on them. If you just need to go to Times Square to see some of this, or go to Shanghai, where you can really see it, or also Dubai, everywhere in the world is, is uh, uh, illuminated now. And actually, one of the reasons we included a piece in the show by Chio Aoshima uh, is because it's called City Glow, which is essentially what's happening to our cities. So Dietrich Newman, who has done a whole study and a whole book and a whole exhibition on this subject, we'll be talking about this on April 12th uh, at 2 uh, p.m. So those are a few of uh, upcoming things I hope you'll, you'll come to. Now, Tony, Tony Ausler. Now, I've always pronounced it Tony Ausler. My staff has been correcting me now for about the last six months, saying it's Tony Orsler. Finally today, someone told me, no, it is Tony Ausler. So I now have to be really careful and go back. It's Ausler, right? Good, I was right all along. Tony was born in 1957 in New York. It's hard for me to believe because I think about him so much as a Californian because when I first met him, we were both out in Los Angeles and he studied at Cal Arts and he just, you just still seem like a Californian to me, Tony. I just can't still accept you as a New Yorker, but, uh, but he is a New Yorker. And he got his BFA from, from CalArts in 1979, studying under people like uh, John Baldessari, Jonathan Borofsky, Laurie Anderson. 
He's had all kinds of influences on his work, a lot of which we probably shouldn't mention, but um, others such as television, it is Catholic background, it says right here, so that'll be interesting to hear about. And uh, literary connections of his family, his grandfather wrote popular literature, and his father worked as an editor in the film business. Ah, okay. See, it would have been so smooth if it had been the film business. Is <laughs> in the magazine business. Um, and so along with artists such as Gary Hill, Bruce Nauman, Bill Viola, and a whole host of other video artists, Tony really has risen throughout the 1980s and 90s to be one of the most prominent figures uh, working with the moving image today, one of the outstanding video artists of our time. We're very fortunate to have him here tonight. He works sometimes in very small scale, some of which you've seen in the exhibition. He likes to call those effigies, I believe. Uh, but he also works in very large scale uh, at times, too, doing large room-sized installations. And in fact, um, he actually does things on fog and on trees, and I've seen his work projected on all kinds of, um, uh, all kinds of uh, surfaces. Um, this evening he's going to talk about the way that he animates these objects and how he has a fascination with uh, various versions of human consciousness. And, you know, if there's any sort of overriding theme of this uh, film and video survey, and most film and video surveys, I believe, are like just a lot of film and video put together. And one of the things that we wanted to do in this exhibition uh, it was really to take a look at film and video from a more thematic perspective, particularly from the way that film operates on us psychologically and operates on the subconscious. So I'll be very interested in, in hearing what Tony has to say about that. Um, and he also operates in this kind of border between the natural and the sort of supernatural, as you can see when you see the pieces in the show. Um, there's a quote here, which I'll just read just a little bit of it. Tony says, quote, in my use of narrative techniques, I always wanted to get my spectator entrapped. I, I really like that because that's exactly what we were after uh, in the exhibition. Tony has shown in many different places. He's had major exhibitions at the Pompidou, at Porticus in Frankfurt, at the Stedelijk van Abbey Museum in Eindhoven, at the Whitney Museum, at the Metropolitan Museum, uh, and at MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, as well as the Walker. He's been part of the Carnegie International. He's been in Documenta 8, 9, and 10. But they just, they just can't find other, other artists for that, for Documenta, can they? That's an incredible. Sao Paulo 14 and the Sculpture Project in Munster. So please join me in welcoming Tony Ausler. Well, thank you, Carrie, and uh, that was a great introduction. I don't know if I can live up to that, but uh, um, I'm very happy to be here. I really love this town, and um, the exhibition is really a rare, rare opportunity for, uh, for a uh, media kind of circus to get focused and uh, elegantly displayed and kind of create a dream space for us all to walk through, which um, basically is in the end, in, at the end of the day, what I think uh, media is all about is uh, kind of bringing us back into 
some kind of lost play space. And, um, you know, here we call it a dream space. And I think I'm going to start tonight by um, just showing some of my early work, which I have to say, you know, I grew up watching television. And, um, of course, at the time that I did that, the average uh, high school student graduating from high school watched more TV than they did anything except sleep. And um, so I've come to think that that, you know, probably could have been regulated like a drug. But um, anyway, that's where I grew up. And uh, so I went to, I, I was a painter, and um, I always loved to paint as a kid. And I was, of course, into people like Salvador Dali and the Surrealists and had these wacky kid notions that you had to learn to uh, paint sort of like Rembrandt before you could break the picture up like Picasso or something, you know, these kind of adolescent ideas. And um, so anyway, I found myself at California Institute for the Arts really by mistake and uh, was probably the most fortunate um, you know, uh, thing that happened to me in terms of my career because uh, there were just fantastic teachers there and students and um, I was quickly introduced to uh, the that video camera after I realized that all my art ideas were um, pretty much adolescent and uh, that if I was going to do anything I had to sort of open up my mind even further and um, so someone said well why don't you try a video camera and it was a revelation that I you know I, I like to talk about that because everybody is so used to video now everywhere, just pouring out of every pore in the universe, buildings, subways, uh, pockets, as Carrie mentioned. And, um, but at that time, and the video, the portable video camera, the Portapack, was only around for about 10 years. Uh, so in 1967 uh, was, I think, when it was invented uh, by Sony, and it was a small camera about this big with a big, chunky reel-to-reel -reel player. And um, so I got that you know, it was already 10 years old, rejected by the film department and given to the artists so they could splatter paint on it and whatever. And uh, it was just like and a total, total epiphany for me because it was really like moving through this glass screen into another dimension and controlling this apparatus that kind of, you know, there were basically three channels for those of us who remember that time period uh, that you could watch and you had to change them like this. And uh, so anyway, I was like, oh, here's how they do it. They r record it and then they put it on the TV and they somehow send it out to us and now I'm going to make my own TV shows. And uh, of course I didn't have any money or anything, so uh, I had to come up with other ways of making things. So uh, that I'm going to show you one of those early tapes, if I can uh, actually. Nice. Yeah, here we go. Until you get to know me and you see what I'm really like. <laughs> you see all the out of control things that I do to other people and myself. Um, pretty nice until you hear all the things that I say about other people and I say about you. 
behind your back. And all those things make people want to do things to me. Um, I'm pretty nice until I have to go home. And go to sleep. Because all the things around me make me tired. I'm pretty nice until you get to know me. And then you won't want to know me at all. So, you see the sets got more elaborate. This is 1980. And um, so, the soundtracks and the settings were a little more elaborate and I, I kind of influenced by uh, George Méliès and uh, the German Expressionists and um, but a little California style, I guess. Can we have the sound up a little bit? He didn't have albino cockroaches. And he didn't appreciate the simple things in life. This was a, a piece called The Loner, which was about uh, 30 minutes long. An excerpt. Uh, and enjoy those things because he was enjoying this wonderful meal before his eyes. Life was beautiful to him, just wonderful. Everything was fulfilling that morning. He couldn't believe how good it was. Mm. So I was really trying to uh, figure out how to make a TV for, for, uh, for myself and um, it really involved the audience kind of connecting the, the dots and um, This one. So I'm going to skip ahead some years um, and I think I'll pause for one second. But I, what happened was um, in the late 80s, I had a kind of what I call my uh, year zero. And um, because I'm going to just pause it right there, which gives you a good view of this piece. Um, and what happened was um, I, I was making, as you see, these kind of elaborate, more and more elaborate videos that um, kind of culminated in these um, very large sets, like the size of this room, that would have like a floating camera through it and different activities happening and um, almost like a, a retarded Busby Berkeley or something. and. Um, um, then 
what I would do is display the videos in these installations that all, often involved these painted sets and, um, and I was kind of playing with this idea of inside, outside, inside the screen and the audience inside the space and uh, what could happen with that. So, you know, there were varying degrees of successfulness and, uh, but I think that, that uh, the problem was there was a kind of stylistic element that had to do with, um, with, with pictorial space that I sort of carried over from painting into the video and then it was sort of turned that inside out back and forth in every different direction. And um, I had a kind of, my move to uh, Boston, you know, I was from California to New York to Boston and I was teaching at Mass College of Art, and I sort of just dropped everything uh, in terms of image making, and I just wanted to work on these more psychological um, installations. I had this idea that that what was interesting about, about you know I kind of did these kind of deconstructed things or these kind of kabuki things uh, with the videotapes for 12 or 15 years, and it was all about what was left out of the picture and what was put into the picture and what was implied and I was playing with that to try to draw the audience in to make this narrative themselves. So I was working with these sort of cliches that kind of fell apart and these images that sort of held together and then fell apart and then came back together. Reading Brecht and talking about his, I think his X factor which has to do with, you know, when things kind of fall apart on the stage and then you realize that you're sitting in the audience is actually the point where you really get the work, that you're part of the work. And so, uh, you know, I, I started just thinking about very simple, um, simple ideas sort of refracting off of this giant narrative space that existed. You know, friends of mine were making like feature films, you know, and and this was a way to sort of get out of the art world and make like the feature film. And so I had this idea like, do I want to make a feature film? Do I want to be an artist? What, what am I doing here, you know, because I want to get more serious about this involvement. And I decided, um, you know, this is ridiculous. I really want to be an artist, you know, I don't want to spend three years working on uh, this roller coaster ride of emotions, you know, much more interesting deconstructing narrative. And so I came up with this idea that, that, you know, like at school when I was teaching at Mass College of Art, where I first met Milena um, in Boston, you know, people would come in on, you know, Monday or something and say like, oh, did you see that Spielberg movie? Or yeah, well, I didn't see it yet. What happened, you know? And then they would say, well, this happened, that happened. And then this, you know, somebody's head got cut off and then this was really funny. The special effects were amazing. And I started to realize that's much more interesting than the movie, you know? This is really much more interesting. You just make it up in your head, you know? And this is the, sort of the difference between being an artist and being a cinematographer or something. And um, so right around the same time, um, you know, I sort of stopped making two-dimensional images, painting into sets and things, 
and um, I started working with surveillance cameras. And I was opened up a magazine, and I saw this very tiny projector advertised, and uh, I bought it. Um, you know, got it in the mail, opened it up, and I just happened to have some Barbie dolls around uh, the studio, as I would, uh, <laughs> actually. Uh, and so I projected uh, my face onto this wedding Barbie doll, you know, with this, uh, and, you know, I sat it up in the kitchen and my roommate, Joe Gibbons, the filmmaker, you know, I said, Joe, what do you think of this? This is kind of good, isn't it? You know, it's like Disneyland, but further, you know, and he was like, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. So fast forward to, um, you know, it was the kind of way out of my year zero, basically, is to try to take these projections off the screen, put them onto three-dimensional objects, into, you know, onto patterned surfaces and so forth. And at the same time, I was reading a lot about, about psychology and empathy and, uh, uh, multiple personality, and I came up with this idea of uh, of doing a piece uh, related to multiple personality disorder, which parts of it were actually shown here before, I believe. Um, and and uh, so this piece, Judy, which I'm not going to babble anymore, I'll show it a little bit, was a kind of manifestation of um, of one of my first experiments with uh, empathy traps and um, different parts of a personality sort of spread out diagonally across a, a space. So the idea was here was the horror part of someone's personality and then there was an aggressive part of the personality. And you see that these were just cloth dolls. Um, and it also was the beginning of my working with uh, Tracy Leopold. through a little bit. So it was a diagonal and it was almost like a, a kind of schematic of this person's personality, a fantasy uh, character that I made up from a uh, sort of composite of researching, uh, especially the poetry of uh, multiples, which of course isn't even a disease, it's kind of a made-up phenomenon which I think came from uh, being a media culture. So Tracy got to uh, change herself into all these different personalities, and um, this was probably my favorite, the, the uh, truck driver, Tracy, wedged under the couch. And of course, it was all floral patterns connected. Um, this was a kind of fetal Tracy back in the womb. And then 
the lost child, Tracy, and then finally um, there was a section where the viewer gets to sit in, in the um, exhibition and control a, um, a dummy on the outside of the exhibition hall and talk through it. Um, and I'm going to show you that. Let's see if we uh, here it is. So you would sit there and then um, talk through the microphone and control the uh, camera that was inside of a kind of sort of a scarecrow outside of the museum. And you could heckle people on the street or <laughs> say whatever you wanted to say. So there's Tracy outside of the building. So I was really using very, very simple technologies, but to uh, highlighting their psychological effect because people would, uh, various times when I showed this, they, you know, there would be calls from the police and um, all sorts of things because kids would get the in there and that say anything. I was this one. So the heads got a little more How, reduced. I artist Tony Ausler, would he advise our audience to experience his work? Just take a look, you know, because these things are designed to be kind of one half of a conversation, and um, the viewer is envisioned as the other half of the conversation. Ausler's part of the dialogue is subversive children's rhymes, an attempt to trigger the subversive child in the viewer. I hate you. You hate me. I got a machine gun. To kill Barney. One big shot, Barney's on the floor. This is Barney the PBS puppet, right? Yeah, the puppet. So then there you have, you know, these kids kind of figuring out different ways to kill this thing that's being shoved down their throat, you know, as a, as a kind of corporate package. Pull the trigger, hit him in the head. Oopsie daisy, Barney's dead. Arisler says he wants to break the hypnotic trance of commercial culture even on non-commercial TV, with something subversive that asks viewers to participate. These particular texts are, um, they're not exactly childish. You know, they're, they're actually kind of intense and... Uh, they're found. Sexual... Uh, found texts. Kind of the idea with these heads, kind of detached heads in a way, kind of echoing to one another through time and space, different variations on these, uh, on these poems. As you can see, Ausler answered my oh-so-serious questions with serious answers. But he thought I was missing the essential fun of it all. So I played along in a demonstration of his craft. First, he videotapes a face within a black frame. When I'm looking at your exhibit, what do you expect me to be doing? I read a statistic once that the average museum goer spends about 1.5 seconds in front of each painting. Then he plays back the tape onto a molded head. Uh, people will spend two hours in a Hollywood movie that you could sum up in uh, 10 seconds. So I think it's, it's a matter of priorities and uh, a different way of looking at time, really. Yeah, but movies have a vocabulary, a set of conventions that we're already familiar with, whereas with new artists and works of art, you've got to as an act of faith, 
learn their vocabulary, enter into their worlds, and you don't know what the payoff's going to be. I disagree. I think that most Hollywood movies uh, induce in the viewer a hypnagogic uh, trance, a drug-like state, and that culturally art might be difficult in the beginning, but eventually it's a lot more playful experience than I think you're, you're letting on. If you had to state a sort of overall purpose for your work, would you say it's to break the hypnotic trance that we're in as a result of this culture? <laughs> that would be good if the Whitney Biennial could do that. This answer of Tony Ausler's brought us back to the Biennial for one last concern. When we were at the Whitney, we'd had to leave some of our TV gear alone for much of the day. Some museum goers had taken to contemplating it as yet another exhibit. In the spirit of the show, a nearby guard answered their questions. Is that a piece of artwork? I says, yes, it is. What is the title? I says, it's on title. Over the years, critics of modern art have put forth such instances as evidence that aesthetic judgment has become random. But Tony Ausler had a completely different response. I love that story. I mean, I, I, it's just incredible if people could have that, take that attitude with them out, out of the museum into their daily lives. You mean they could look at the world as if it were all art? For a time, anyway. <laughs> so um, then, of course, I had to get down to some other body parts with the projection, and, and of course, the eye is a, one of the most overused um, images in art. And, um, but I wanted to take a stab at how, how it could um, somehow reflect the uh, isolation and um, intensity of viewing uh, the viewing state, the kind of um, something about being energized but being separated from from uh, fellow human beings which is a kind of dilemma and beauty of, uh, of viewing so what I did was sh shoot people watching various uh, horror movies pornography or video games things like that and um, and just closed up on their eyes, so you look very closely, you can just make out the TV image there, the screen image, which is quite low resolution. And um, <clears throat> I'm lucky to have uh, one of, a piece from this series in the exhibition here when you get a chance to move around uh, the space. I really felt there was a kind of sadness that came from, from that exhibition. Uh, I'm going to skip through this. Oops, I don't want. Um. So um, you could see I was sort of getting into this reductivist moment there, trying to isolate different aspects of this media experience. and. And so I often thought about the pixel or the, the, the Benday dot or the point in a TV screen or a computer screen. And I thought, you know, 
how could I make a piece that just capitalized on on that with just changing light and sound? So I had a machine made that was voice activated, and um, this is uh, how it kind of worked at night, a talking light, and um, so I'm going to get into this a little bit here. Um, since David Bowie's part of this exhibition, um, I thought I'd include some of a collaboration with David. Oops. Um, not hitting the sweet spot here yet. So. This was Madison Square Garden, um, a kind of pay-per-view, David's 50th, um, 50th birthday party, where he's singing with Fla Frank Black. And um, so I worked with him uh, doing his stage setting, and then he also performed in some of my pieces. And I really just loved working with him. He was uh, kind of, the, to me, the ultimate um, multiple personality figure, um, kind of constantly morphing and taking in um, interjected uh, ideas from the culture. Anyway. It's just rock and roll, really. Um, I don't think that's loud enough. Is that loud enough? It doesn't feel like rock and roll. Can you make it louder, please? Yeah, come on, louder, louder, louder. I want them to feel like they're there. There we go. Okay. All right, that's enough. So that, just quickly, I'm not going to show a lot of this piece, but this is an excerpt from a, a CD-ROM. That has survived so many tumbles um, and so many tender little moments. Little more quiet, please. The lips of people. A collaboration with Stephen Vitello and um, and Constance Dijon, and it was kind of the energy of uh, of. of the early videotapes was kind of brought into this interactive uh, mode. And um, so I really wanted to see what could happen with, uh, with something that was somewhere in between music, literature, and, um, and movie space. So if you have a chance, you can explore the CD-ROM. So I didn't really give up the single channel like uh, video thing all together for installations, but um, it took different forms. Let's see. Now, 
going to show this piece, which was a real kind of breakthrough piece for me. Um, you can get this, that first image there in the smoke is about 20, 20 so feet high. And this is Madison Park in New York. And, um, and that's a smoke machine. Um, bellowing out smoke uh, controlled by actually uh, oh, you can see one of the guys over there yeah so there this was projected on two layers and it was a kind of a piece that I worked on for about two years, and it involved um, writing a very uh, elaborate text. Um, I'm just going to pause this for one second. It involved writing a uh, text, uh, which is actually um, very lucky to have it in involved in the, um, the catalog for this exhibition, and uh, it's in the uh, mint green pages in the back of this lovely book accompanying the show here and it's a timeline that you know at a certain point i had a, you know i kind of always come to these p moments where i just kind of break it down and try to figure out what's next and part of that was a feeling that okay video art was ignored in a lot of ways in the art world until 91 or something and uh with arguably the Documenta 9 with uh, Gary Hill, Bill Viola, myself, and, um, and um, Matthew Barney. And, and so that was a kind of, you know, breakthrough moment, I think, where people were like, yeah, it can not just be the TV in the bedroom. Oh, it could be in the museum. And um, it, it really happened then. But I think in terms of uh, criticism and uh, art history, I started to think that there was a, a like a history, a shadow history of media that was um, just taken out of all the history books, you know, that involved a kind of little bit of science, a little bit of art, a little bit of magic, and uh, an awful lot of, uh, of technology. And time-based projects, um, like I discovered that, you know, so I started digging into this and researching it. And I discovered people, uh, you know, that most people really didn't even know who invented television. Does anyone know here? Yeah, no. Philo T. Farnsworth or John Logie Baird. See, it's amazing to me. So, I mean, if that, that was, you know, you know, I don't know. You know other things, but you don't know that. But, uh, and then, um, but, I was wondering, well, why is that? You know, it's kind of interesting and important. And also because young people are trying to make, I think it's an important step culturally and politically, actually, that young people really understand more about media, not just try to imitate old me media forms, but that they try to push it forward. And uh, part of that is having a history. And so I made up my own history, which I kludged together spastically, actually, before there was Google. And now I have to rewrite it again, I think. But it has a lot of the salient points in there and great characters like um, 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 
um, Gaspar Robertson, who invented um, the Phantasmagoria, which was um, arguably the first moving image theater. It was kind of a mixture of performance and projections, and, and it was in a crypt in Paris and, uh, in the late 1700s. And since then, there's been a couple of books written about the Phantasmagoria. But he, you know, so I started kludging together this timeline and just so that I would have my own history. And, and it started working its way into what I was making. And I skipped a lot of the pieces in there that are based on this timeline. And they were sort of interactions with, with the history of media. And so they involve like making lenses and demonic figures appearing in, uh, in, in, in um, camera obscuras and things like that. And so I just felt that, you know, one of the things that was important to me about making art was that it was always in the vernacular, that anyone who came in off the street into an art gallery could get my work on one level, and that also people more educated in, in the arts could also get it. And so, I found myself in this horrible predicament that while researching this history that I had completely got into this arcane, obscure information. And I just remember talking to people about my exhibitions and just watching their eyes just sort of float away across, you know, just boring them to tears, you know, it was like, and then he did this and then that happened and then so forth. And it was exciting for me and it still is, but um, it was, getting strange. And so I had the opportunity to do this project in London and New York, its first big outdoor uh, media extravaganza, uh, public artwork with the Public Art Fund. And I was kind of thinking, you know, I've got to get out of this historic mode somewhere. And I found a uh, text uh, that related to spiritualism and the spiritual telegraph. and. Of course, I had uh, Morris, the Morris Code in, in, as the first, uh, you know, collapsing of space in the, uh, in the telepresence uh, history. Uh, the telegraph was the first instant connection between two places, although one could argue that, and I'm not going to now. But anyway, uh, but spiritualist, the spiritualist movement in 1848, it was this exact same year, used this kind of wrapping um, analogy to uh, the Morse code to talk to the dead. And, you know, I had heard about people like um, Constantine Rudive who used, you know, tuned into like static uh, radio and tried to talk to the dead and of course was fascinated by the exorcist, which of course was shot here in Washington and I used to hang out on the steps, uh, the famous steps. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, I started to realize that the sort of end of my timeline could be this, looking at all the technologies starting with photography that were used to talk to the dead because politically it was really interesting to see, you know, a non-corporate use of technology. So people who picked up a camera rather than just, you know, taking the picture of their family like they were supposed to, like most people did or whatever they were going to do. Some people started taking picture of spirits floating around and then 
when the telegraph was invented, that also people were using this kind of wrapping code to like talk to people on the other side. And then I managed to find Kluge together um, examples of everything except for film. Uh, the computer, it's easy. You can just go on the internet and find possessed hard drives. And, um, <laughs> and spirit photography still happens and so forth. So, so this piece was a kind of dialogue with these historical figures, the phantasmagoria, the gothic, and our need to go into a dark room and watch things and, and dream. And, um, and the kind of almost uh, popularist uh, impulse that when, when new technologies come out that, you know, how do they become corporatized, you know? How do we take over, um, you know, Wi-Fi? How does Wi-Fi end up being, you know, charged for and things like that? And how do we get excluded from television and so forth? And how will the government figure out how to uh, close down the internet, which they're are actually trying to do now, I think. Um, but anyway, the, I use this, not that I'm a believer in the occult, I'm fascinated by it, uh, but I like the idea of it as almost a political statement that people would, you know, take radio and, you know, some people would be listening to sort of Prairie Home Companion and then other people would be turning the dial to the static and listening to these voices of, spirits or people from other planets. Um, so anyway, I'm going to show a little bit of this piece that, uh, oh, so the smoke, um, came directly out of, uh, the diaries of, uh, Gaspar Robertson, the inventor of the phantasmagoria who used to do slide projections and, um, uh, project onto smoke with slide projections or distort the image. And um, so the metaphor was of the wrapping and the metaphor of the wrapping and the translation of information through different mediums um, became really important for me after this too. This is a uh, actual text from a possessed computer. So this began for me uh, a whole new kind of 
experiment with large-scale projections, which I had the good fortune to have a few invitations to do. And um, that's real lightning, too. This is in, um, of course, it's a German text relating to uh, the idea of, of transmission, of um, being encoded and decoded and crossing space and time and being reformed in a way, which is the kind of um, the magic of media in general. Uh, people get captured by the lens and then, and so here it had a special uh, kind of situational effect because this was this beautiful Peter Zumpter building in Bregenz and these glass panels almost reminded me of pixels and I lighted the, uh, the, the performers in such a way that they would kind of dissolve into the building and um, they also faced out over a great lake. Uh, it's a border town there so, and there's a huge TV station antenna. <clears throat> so it was kind of inspired by the idea that, that this was a place of great transition. Um, I'm going to keep going. Let's see. So the eyes, this is a project that I wanted to show uh, just briefly. You know, I kind of return sometimes to these uh, tropes. This is a, an exhibition related to the Yanomamis, uh, a tribe, a fascinating tribe in the um, Amazon. And so I collaborated with some of the tribe members in generating imagery for this project at the Cartier Foundation. But I wanted it to be like kind of a maze. So these eyes were approximately the scale of a human being, so you could sort of get lost as you moved through the space. And they're translucent as well, so they have, uh, they kind of capture the light in a special way. <clears throat> so, I couldn't really, could you, turn that up a little bit. I couldn't really get away from uh, the human face and form, but I, I moved down the road a ways and um, started doing these kind of um, composite characters that really related to kind of uh, computer space and started thinking about pets. This is sort of pre-Webkins and um, the idea of having a... Uh, uh, a bond with this artwork that was unique. And so this one's called Baby. Oh, and yes. Oh, that's good. And so these are kind of disembodied uh, bodies. Uh, that maybe turn it down just a little bit. Um, but for each...
So for each one of these characters, I, for all of my projects, I do a lot of writing. But for these particular uh, pieces, I, I had a, um, a dog for, I guess, like 20 years about. And he died right then. And I was also having a baby. And, you know, I got married. And I was thinking about somehow about this computer pets and somehow all these things came together into this embarrassing um, kind of pillow talk uh, lover whispering talking to pets I love the way people talk to pets it's this kind of really embarrassing language that they use and so these were very monosyllabic pieces because a lot of my pieces tend to babble on and um, and so these were very reduced, but uh, were kind of hard to write uh, and embarrassing to some degree, which I like to pass on that embarrassment to the viewer. Uh, you can see people get embarrassed when they look at them. Anyway, there's a cast of these characters. Uh, I'm gonna move on to the next disc here. And I'll see. Um, so I have a few more public projects I'm going to show here, I think. Yeah. So I had the good fortune to work on the amazing building with uh, Rem Coolhouse and do a small intervention uh, in the escalator. So if you happen to be in Seattle, it's a permanent piece. And, you know, um, it, so I made that porthole there uh, for people to sort of deconstruct and view from the other side. And you could see the piece for about 15 seconds uh, as you pass through. It's totally amazing space. Here's from through that porthole. Uh, <laughs> uh, look at that hallway. I mean, it's just the building is spectacular and. It's, of course, a library. And um, so the, the challenge for me to do a permanent piece, you know, was, um, first of all, not to bore people. So I kind of wrote, I don't know, like five hours of material or something so that I figured if people were going by every 15 seconds that they would never completely get bored with it. And, um, and it was really a telephone game, you know, the kids game where somebody tells somebody a piece of information and then to the next person whispers it and the next person and the next person. And that was the sort of theme of it, um, this kind of poetic interpretation of what might happen in the library. 
this exchange of information. And, uh, you know, hats off to Gordon Mata Clark and. So. Show your dad some modern art today like you've never seen or heard. I got what is that? A huge talking potato on fire? And is this really the Met? Last things first, it is the Met. More on this in a bit. Have you noticed what's going on at the museum with exhibitions like surrealist Max Ernst and fashion designer Coco Chanel this summer? The Metropolitan Museum of Art is displaying an unprecedented number of modern art shows through next spring. Their buzz line, they want you to get modern at the Met. Which brings us back to... <laughs> Climax by Tony Arsler on the left, chatting there with Met curator in charge, Gary Tintero, in front of Arsler's other display called Studio. What's unusual for the Met now is to have an exhibition of works by Tony Arsler. He's under 50, and the MTV generation is going to be much more comfortable and familiar looking at his works than people who prefer to look at, say, Impressionist painting in the Annenberg Collection. Shown in Paris at the Musée d'Orsay, and now for the first time in the U.S., Ausler's studio is his three-dimensional response to Gustave Courbet's unfinished work, The Artist's Studio, from 1855. At work between good versus evil, Arsler couldn't resist Courbet's composition and contrasts. It's a fantasy painting. Of course, these people weren't all in his studio. It wasn't a big party. These were imaginary characters and real characters that he mixed together to represent himself in his studio. And I have always felt that that's the way I work. You know, I have various teachers, friends, associates, relatives, um, who have influenced me. The focal point is a screen with an endless video loop of people who visited Alser's studio. And look around, it's a family affair here. A painting by Alser's wife, and like Corbet, who included his son, Ausler includes his boy on video. One of the funny things about him is he was in the oral stage and he was like going, always going like this, <laughs> biting the camera, you know? So I thought, what a perfect uh, thing to have in this piece as the future of media, you know? It's like this little baby eating media. It's interactive and watch out, you might see yourself here too. The idea is that with the surveillance camera, Mm -hmm. I wanted it to uh, bring people into the piece because they're projected back onto the wall, as you can see in the back there. The ideal artwork for me involves everybody. This green blobby thing, what is that, Tony? That, uh, that is me. Okay. That represents me in this piece, and I was feeling very sluggish and blobbish and kind of from outer space. Which brings us back to Climaxed. Ausler calls his booming, talking art his commentary on the explosion as a character in action movies. So I thought to kind of invert it and say, like, well, let's get rid of all the other characters. And and have the, ex the explosion as the main character. A Rockland County native, Ausler says the seed was planted when... So here's another big outdoor piece that was um, done at the, at the uh, Jus de Palme 
and kind of connects to what uh, Kerry was talking about before about uh, architecture and and media, and so I had done a, a few pieces in Windows before and um, um, outdoor public projects, but it seems more and more that eventually with uh, new technologies that that buildings will be one big moving picture and that public space will no longer be um, as contemplative or quiet as it once was and it seems like a really interesting moment. I call it the the sixth wall really with um, you know starting out in cinema and then ending up with architecture or public space and you know with this piece called the sixth wall I kind of wrote a text, almost a critical text, about what could happen in architectural space with the moving image and, and took it as the beginning of a, of a kind of exploration of what makes it different, what makes uh, architectural space different than, than, say, an interior space. And, um, you know, I think that's really, the, in a way, a lot of the future of, uh, of public space is going to be um, decided by probably the wrong people, but, um, <laughs> but it's worth thinking about. And I'm going to skip through. This is a very uh, dark collaboration uh, with uh, Kim Gordon, Phil Morrison, and myself. Um, it's a double projected screen, front and back projection. Um, but I just show it as a, another experiment in, um, in collaboration and uh, what can be done. It's kind of based on the 1930s and 40s noir movies where I was always fascinated by how someone's driving a car and, and what's in and the window behind them is kind of um, is projected and obviously in a different space but sutured together and um, what happens with that. So we made this road movie kind of feature length with a live band and um, I don't know if it'll ever tour but uh up with a couple more things here. So this this project was at uh, Metro Pictures a few years ago and I worked with a kind of supercomputer to um, generate this kind of three almost alchemical installations, one related to dust, one related to uh, mercury or kind of molten metal, and the third being water. That gives you some idea of the scale.
Never ever coming back. Never ever coming back. There's the water piece. So it was a bit of, this was a bit of a depressing exhibition in a way. Um, but um, I don't know whether it had to do with the elections or something, but um, uh, I'm going to show, I guess, three more pieces and then maybe we could do some questions. Uh, um, this is another public project, which is kind of not really that well documented, but I um, was very happy with uh, with it. It's in a uh, very strange convention center, an arts complex in Phoenix. And so I had to really work with the architecture. I didn't choose those colors, I'll have to tell you right now. But, uh, Wonder at the lights and intricate glasswork in the Crystal Palace. Aliens had a hand in it. But this piece was really special to me because I, I spent a lot of time in Phoenix researching the kind of lure around there and the kind of, you know, exploration of the West and and um, <clears throat> the mythology of of, uh, of the landscape there and uh, it's also permanent if you happen to be there happen to be in Phoenix if you happen to retire in Phoenix <laughs> it may still be there and as they have driven by visions of instant wealth first the Apache Spanish thunder God so that's the ceiling Spanish dead in your tracks found mutilated heads on Various bullets led past right through the air. Hear that? See it zing from everything. So, um, Let's see, I'm going to show like the last three projects that have been uh, occupying my time here. Um, this one is really a kind of end of the world project. This is an enormous landscape. Um, I can't even tell you how big that is, but it's very big. Um, and it's just at sunset on the Gibbs Farm in New Zealand. And there's an enormous um, three-mile kind of inlet there, uh, tidal inlet that gets only about two feet of water and is just covered with mud. And there's three projections, one on a tree, a special New Zealand-type tree, and uh, one on... on 
on the mud and one on the kind of landscape there. But I had to document it at sunset because it gets so dark at night there since there's no ambient light at all um, that you can't pick up any of the uh, landscape. But that's like 100 feet or something. Um, <clears throat> so this piece was all about kind of connecting to the to the land and archaeology and um, sex and death. I guess that's the adolescent, we're back to the adolescent art themes. But um, since it was, it, it, every time I went there, it really had the feeling of the kind of end of the world, you know, that this beach, you know, was it. And then you went out into the water and then there was, you know, the beginning of, uh, of our species, you know, that you could just grab the mud and pick up a uh, golem or something or a uh, homunculus or, you know, Darwin stopped not far from here. And uh, so, You can barely make out the image on the lower right there. And on a more comical, but not very light note, was a, a sort of shootout in Milan. Um, These what personified uh, bullets. Here you have a, a spent slug. And some hollow points with Tony Conrad performing. There in the back, we see the wad cutters. They strangely look like Thomas the tank engine. I'm not sure. Her. And I'm going to put on one last thing. This is um, an exhibition, uh, I think today is the last day of this exhibition in, in um, Spain, in Madrid. And um, 
it's my the newest work, which I have you. sort of involves uh, a return to the, some of the found objects that you saw in the uh, earlier pieces, but um, a little more complicated relationship of images. Some references to uh, Salvador Dali. Clothing, shelter, food, clothing, shelter. I want to be a diverse organism just like you. Could you turn that up a little bit? I'd like to be a diverse organism just like you. This one's mildly pornographic. I thought about having a, a foghorn in this, had a kind of sailor theme to it. But it, in a funny way, it has a Baldessari reference, the, uh, the floating dot on the wall. So I think I'll stop it there because this one's a little too dark to oh, see, but it's a, it's a kind of mask. Optimistic. Yeah. Yeah, we'll leave it on an optimistic note. <laughs> and um, thank you. Thanks.